0: Hello and welcome to the 48th episode of Adam Alonzi's podcast. In this recording, we discuss an exciting and almost unbelievable period in the history of psychology with one of the pioneers of consciousness studies, Dr. Bernard Bars. Tonight, we are discussing the cognitive revolution in psychology with Dr. Bernard Bars, who wrote a book with the same name. So, let's get right to it. Now, it seems strange, even to a young child, that the word mind, the very concept of consciousness, would become taboo. So I suppose the first thing people would ask is, how did this happen? It's an extraordinary story, and
1: uh, it only has become clear uh, as we are taking distance and moving farther away from the dominance of behaviorism, which is roughly the period from 1920 to about 1980. That's about a 60-year period, which is a very long time for a a scientific belief system to last, especially in an immature science that is just starting out. Uh, Behaviorism ruled out the concept of mind. It ruled out consciousness. It ruled out will and free will. It ruled out uh, thinking and because of its particular constraints on on our own uh, process of thinking in the science of psychology, uh, it also ruled out everything that cannot be directly observed from the outside.
0: In a way it was an extreme manifestation of physics and
1: i think that's a, that's a good observation there's a great deal of truth to it but you have to understand uh, what it was like and when i take a critical view of behaviorism which i do i also have to take an empathic view uh, and Imagine what it was like to be a behaviorist uh, in John Watson's time, for example, John Watson being the founder of what is called radical behaviorism, which, uh, in his own words, which denies all varieties of subjectivity. Uh, So there is no subjective perception, there's no subjective uh, hearing. Uh, as the listener is doing right now, uh, there's no subjective intention. Uh, My goals and your goals in talking right now uh, are not supposed to be uh, discussed within the realm of scientific psychology according to behaviorism. And that is a, a huge, it's a kind of purge of our common vocabulary about
0: the human mind. Watson came from an interesting background. He was raised as a Baptist in South Carolina and eventually renounced that and renounced religion altogether and even equated the concept of consciousness with a soul and felt two words were almost interchangeable.
1: That was uh, actually uh, not exactly wrong uh, because the Greek word for psyche uh, also means soul and within the, the, uh, one of the foundation, one of the foundational traditions of Western thought, there is a difference of opinion between people who follow Plato who indeed thought of the soul as a religious uh, entity, uh, and Aristotle uh, who thought it was a natural entity. So uh, when you read Aristotle today, for example, there's essentially no difference between what Aristotle thought about the human mind um, and what we think today. The mind has senses that uh, that uh, inform consciousness. It has goals that, inf- that uh, control our actions. Uh, it communicates, we are communicating mind to mind right now, at least that's how we think about it, uh, and so on. So, uh, so the natural mind is a very, very real entity in Aristotle. He describes it in just about the same way anybody would today. Plato's soul uh, is uh, divine. Uh, it is not exactly human. It's sort of a, a telephone line to God. Uh, and uh, in science, we, we don't deal with that. We leave that to other people to deal with.
0: But then again, when well, William James was somewhat, reluctant to use the word as well, but he was talking about consciousness in the way the word was used by, say, Wilhelm Wundt or the introspectionist by the people who came before him. So even though it had theological connotations, I, I think he went a step too far and created a false equivalence.
1: It's an interesting point. Uh, William James uh, is widely viewed as the, uh, as the wisest and perhaps greatest psychologist uh, of the 19th century, um, certainly uh, the most inclusive uh, psychologist. He knew everything there was to be known. He knew about hypnosis, he knew about split personality, He knew uh, about uh, conversion disorders, everything that uh, European psychologists had studied. Uh, And uh, he wrote the great book in English uh, by common consent called The uh, Principles uh, of Psychology, which appeared in 1890, and which also became the graduate textbook, the advanced textbook for psychology Uh, until behaviorism took over in the 1920s.
0: But, and I suppose we'll end up returning to this, oddly enough, William James did not want there to be an unconscious mind.
1: Yes, uh, it's it's a very interesting point and uh, we will come back to it. Uh, You have to understand. something that may seem odd because we think about science as physics and biology with DNA and chemistry with the, the, ta- the table of the elements and so on. We think about advanced sciences. What we forget is that each one of the advanced sciences had a period of childhood and immaturity that was very argumentative. People yelled at each other. Uh, People disagreed about very, very fundamental things. The very notion of gravity, for example, was extremely controversial after Newton uh, proposed it as an explanation of the solar system. Uh, And that's true in biology. Uh, It is true even in chemistry, which we think of as uh, basic physics. It's true in mathematics, by the way. Uh, there's huge controversies in the history of of mathematics that were only resolved after many centuries. So, early on when human beings uh, struggle with uh, an entire domain of knowledge, like the human psyche, uh, mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, what you see is a lot of controversy and then when we study the textbooks several hundred years later, uh, we have the illusion that everything was cut and
0: dried. That's not true. And another thing that behaviorists in America wanted, and to quote Stanley Hall, he wanted something that was usable, dietetic, efficient for thinking, living, and working. So of course, in physics and chemistry, you had discoveries, great theoretical breakthroughs, and then you had almost immediate applications for them.
1: Yes, um, uh, that was certainly the viewpoint one had uh, during the Industrial Revolution, where uh, you saw enormous locomotives actually being able to cross the American continent uh, from east to west and west to east, uh, and these seem to be straightforward applications uh, of uh, elementary laws about heat and steam and uh, transformation of, uh, of steam power uh, into the motion of wheels on rails. Uh, so everything seemed to have a practical implication and people were delighted by that because prior to the industrial revolution most people lived uh, lives of uh, considerable misery
0: and poverty. Which was another way that behaviors wanted psychology to become more like the other sciences. Why couldn't it be that way?
1: Yes, and of course, the the big problem in life, and this is true in this year, 2016, uh, as well as in 1916 and 1816, the big problem in life is other people. Uh, And psychology, of course, uh, uh, came with the promise to finally be able to make our lives uh, rational and efficient and whatever the other words were that uh, T. Stanley Hall uh, used right around 1900.
0: And some people listening to this podcast might wonder what we mean when we say mind is taboo, consciousness was taboo, when Freud enjoyed quite a bit of success and he certainly denied the existence of consciousness.
1: Yes, the difference is the audience. Uh, Freud uh, addressed uh, actually two audiences from Vienna. He wrote his most popular books right around 1900, 1901, 1902, including the Interpretation of Dreams, Uh, and he had two audiences. One of them was the medical audience because he was a medical scientist, uh, viewed himself certainly as a medical scientist, and the other one was the educated uh, uh, Western public. both of those audiences were happy with the word mind. They had no problem with the word mind, but on the other hand, they were not as strictly scientific as the behaviorists wanted to be either. Uh, To the behaviorists, you could not have uh, science, science of psychology, without being able to tie everything to observable facts in the public domain. uh, I'll repeat that phrase because it's important. Uh, Observable facts, we know about those. Uh, In the public domain means that whatever I'm experiencing right now is not in the public domain. Whatever you're experiencing, whatever the listener is experiencing, that is in their private domain, their private minds, their conscious experiences, maybe their unconscious uh, processes as well. Uh, I certainly believe all that. Uh, but it's not something that we can point at in the public domain and say here is, uh, here is uh, the planet Venus and it goes in a very predictable orbit uh, around the sun. That's physics, that's public science. Psychology seemed to be outside of that.
0: And as a segue between Freud and a figure who isn't nearly as well known, but is also important in the history of psychology, and a funny anecdote about what translations and mistranslations can do in a science Freud's word, trieb, yes. was mistranslated as instinct whereas Clark Hall used the word drive, which was more palatable and acceptable to the behaviorists. And it's also closer to what
1: Freud actually
0: meant. Uh,
1: for, for Freud, uh, the German word, Trieb, uh, which is the same word as in driving a car, for example, it's drive. It is an energy process. And Freud, who thought of himself fundamentally as a physical scientist also, uh, understood physics. He understood a lot of things. Uh, He was trained in neurology and all that good stuff that people in medicine were trained in, uh, in in Europe uh, around 1900. So he knew a great deal of things. And for him, the word drive uh, meant something like force uh, or energy. And so he had a scientific theory about the mind because he could explain it in terms
0: of energy. You pose a good question to Skinner in the book. You say, you have written that behaviorism is not the science of human behavior, but the philosophy of that science. In other words, Skinner was saying it was sort of a net a theory, which is sort of funny since he was posed to theory. Yes, uh,
1: exactly. Skinner, uh, as uh, several of our interviewees in that book uh, remarked, uh, uh, was a very, very brilliant man, uh, extremely well educated, uh, and had personal conversations with some of the leading philosophers of his day. And uh, uh, One of Skinner's most brilliant uh, tricks, I I use the word trick knowingly, uh, was to convert every common sense term, psychological term, uh, like the psychological term goal or purpose, for example, he was able to convert that into a behavioristic observable, at least he thought it was. Uh, and so, and he called it the operant. Uh, the operant was the behavior that an animal does in order to achieve a goal, but without actually having to use the word goal. So, Skinner very cleverly uh, figured out a way uh, to clean up the semantics of everyday psychology uh, so that you could run experiments with rats and so on. Um, and never have to use the word goal.
0: It required some really incredible linguistic and mental gymnastics to frame language in behavioristic terms. And ultimately it was not, as one would imagine, a very sturdy structure and Noam Noam Chomsky managed to blow it down.
1: Right. Uh, That was a very famous uh, controversy. Uh, Skinner, uh, Skinner achieved enormous public acclaim uh, during the first, I think, almost the first 50 years of his career, uh, which started in the 1920s and went on until about 1980, I think. Uh, So he had a long, long publicly famous career. Uh, And uh, and he managed that by turning everything into what appeared to be uh, science and what was in fact science because people did tons of experiments uh, on Skinnerian uh, psychology. Uh, And in that sense, by the way, it should be said that uh, we can criticize Skinner, but uh, he did some extraordinarily good work. He was a very fine uh, experimental scientist. Uh, and yes, he created the framework that, to us, seems circular, uh, so that um, there is no way to observe operants actually, when you start looking at it. Operands being Skinner's notion of a goal-directed action by an animal. Uh, there's no real way to observe it because uh, animals are too complex. Uh, But Skinner got around that by saying, well, I don't care if the rat pushes the bar with his nose or with his left forepaw or whether he sits on the uh, bar in the Skinner uh, box, Uh, however he does it, he's achieving the same goal and he gets the same reward, so we're going to consider all those things equivalent operant behaviors.
0: And even to a layperson, it seems phenomenal that anyone could believe that language, and its immense variety and often impractical uses, is the re- is the result of operant conditioning.
1: Yes, and uh, as you know, uh, uh, Skinner's book called Verbal Behavior, which applied his uh, framework. Uh, uh, to the topic of language uh, was severely criticized uh, by Noam Chomsky, who was then a a very young man, uh, based on the idea that language is rule-governed. And Skinner couldn't explain rules. Uh, Basically, the idea is that if you have uh, an an active uh, uh, voice, a a sentence in an active voice, the boy hit the ball, Um, You can transform it into a passive. The ball was hit by the boy. Uh, That is a rule-governed structure. Uh, You can flip from actives to passives, and they are very, very similar in meaning. The ball was hit by the boy is similar in meaning to the boy hit the ball. Uh, But syntactically, they are related by a certain rule. Uh, In English, that looks like a simple rule to us, but in other languages, it takes on enormously different varieties because human beings are so tremendously inventive when it comes to language. So in some languages, you wouldn't even mention uh, the subject of the sentence, for example, uh, because it's implicit and smart human beings generally understand what the subject of a sentence is if they understand the immediate situation. So, so language is this tremendously creative and generative uh, phenomenon. Uh, generative is a term that Noam Chomsky proposed. And I think substantially, uh, he, uh, he received a lot of credibility on that. And I think there, there's much to be said for Noam Chomsky's point of view. And it also happens to be true that uh, language serves purposes it serves goals. It, uh, it is operant in that sense. Uh, and you can make um, chimps, for example. Um, you can encourage uh, chimps to use sign language uh,
0: by using Skinnerian training methods. And by denying generative phenomena, in a sense, behaviorism sets itself apart from any creative endeavor which is sort of funny because Skinner's initial ambition in life was to become a novelist. Yes, uh, Skinner, all of our
1: characters um, at the beginnings of scientific psychology are very much in conflict with themselves. William James was profoundly conflicted and got depressed about his own conflicts about free will, for example. Uh, B.F. Skinner uh, was profoundly conflicted about consciousness, and his, as you say, his ambition as a young man to become a stream of consciousness novelist. He was very serious about that. Very depressed when he had to give that up. Uh, even John Watson uh, was very much in conflict with himself uh, about all these uh, claims that he made. Uh, so, and and this is not. Unusual again at the beginning of science, uh, Newton, as I mentioned before, uh, also thought of himself as a theologian, and I think as an astrologer, I can't quite remember if it was astrology or some, some similar sort of thing,
0: the, uh, primarily alchemy,
1: alchemy, that's right, yes, and of course alchemy was not a scientific enterprise at that time, uh, it turned into chemistry, but. Uh, but it had to let go of a lot of things before alchemy was able to become chemistry.
0: One other important aspect of behaviorism, and Skinner in particular, is its utopian goals.
1: That's really important, yes. Uh, Behaviorists like Skinner uh, seriously uh, wanted to create a utopia, and Skinner wrote a book about his operant utopia called Walden II. Uh, Walden One is the book by Thoreau uh, which is uh, famous um, uh, particularly as a book by a philosophical New Englander uh, and Skinner of course came from that part of the country. Uh, Walden uh, is a very important book in American literature And Walden II, Skinner's Walden II, was an attempt to transform that into a utopian
0: community. And it was also an act of self-exploration for him because he saw parts of himself in the main characters.
1: Yes, the, uh, the literary part, the analytic, the psychoanalytic part of Skinner pops out when he starts describing his own motivation, uh, which is very strange, of course, uh, because Skinnerians, his followers, uh, by and large, uh, uh, thought very little of Freud. They certainly did not admire Freud.
0: And at the time he wrote the book, he was no longer a very young man. And so presumably, after all of that work, you would think he would have settled into all of his ideas and fully believed them, but it sounded like it took the writing of this book for him to become Fraser and to slay Burris. Well, uh, the Fraser and Burris are the two characters in Walden II,
1: and Walden II is largely a debate between this hard-nosed scientist, Fraser. Uh, And Burris, uh, which is Skinner's middle name, uh, who was a soft-hearted literary type, who who was kind and compassionate and did not want to use the harsh methods that uh, Fraser thought were appropriate uh, in this utopian community. Uh, So Skinner very cleverly uh, uh, used two parts of himself, basically, to represent those two sides. It's the, it's the same thing, though, and uh, in the sense of inner conflict. It's a sign of inner conflict. It's a classical expression of inner conflict, of course. Uh, it goes back to the 19th century, when people who studied hypnosis in France uh, discovered split personalities, for example. Uh, split personalities, the syndrome, which is a very real uh, medical sin- syndrome, uh, involves uh, multiple identities uh, that uh, struggle with each other very often to be heard and to be acted out in the real world. Uh, that's an extraordinary phenomenon. Skinner, as a tremendously well-educated person, of course, knew about that, and he would recognize his own process. It's not quite true, by the way, to say that Fraser won because toward the end of his life, Skinner starts to talk about subjectivity and consciousness and playing Bach uh, on the piano, which was one of his favorite activities. And of course, people who love Bach play it because they love the experience of playing Bach. Uh, So the other side, the Burr side of Skinner, the nice, humane, compassionate person, uh, the literary humanist, never really disappeared in his life, not in reality. He thought it did, but it didn't.
0: Yeah, and although it's a little off topic, the observation of Gestalt therapists, drawing partially from Gestalt psychology, is those parts have to be integrated, not destroyed.
1: Exactly, uh, and, and integration is is a long project uh, in human life uh, because we are all uh, pulled by different forces, different desires, different fears, uh, different opportunities in our lives and so and we don't know the answer from at the beginning right and nobody gives us the formula for happiness uh, and so we have uh, a lot of conflict in our lives um, and uh, resolving all those conflicts in some kind of coherent, holistic, uh, integrated fashion is uh, often thought to be a a long-term project.
0: Which actually does transition nicely to the next portion of the discussion, starting with the proto-cognitive psychologies, amongst which we can count the Gestalt school. Kurt Lewin, Wolfgang Kuhler, Max Wertheimer.
1: Yes, uh, Gestalt means whole, uh, or it means... A unity. (laughs) Yes, it it means a unity. And uh, when the Gestalt psychologists uh, began to become psychologists become scientific they started to design all kinds of very nice demonstrations in vision and hearing and music and language uh, and um, at one time experimental psychologists were very skeptical about the Gestalt psychologists and then they started to verify uh, basically all the demonstrations, all the visual demonstrations, auditory demonstrations and so on uh, that the Gestalt psychologists had developed. Uh, And I think that's still in some ways an ongoing project because there are still ideas, the germs of ideas, the crystals of ideas that are buried in the past that we have not fully exploited from a scientific point of view.
0: What really paved the way, though, for the reintroduction of concepts like imagery, attention, memory, etc., though, was the introduction of the computational metaphor.
1: Yes, uh, the computer, although we deny it because we don't like to think that human beings really are only computers, particularly not the very basic computers that started to emerge in the 1960s and 70s, we, we say that the human brain is not a computer. It isn't really a computer, but the computer was a very liberating idea, and particularly the idea of information and information processing. Because once you acknowledge that the brain performs information processing, then you have a way to think about Sensory perception, uh, action control, uh, goals, uh, um, inner thoughts, feelings—all those kinds of things. So your common sense theoretical vocabulary that we all that we all grow up with uh, suddenly becomes interpretable, which it was not within the physicalistic framework of behaviorism.
0: Yeah, and even then, we were able to write algorithms that were not purely reflexive. They were capable of generating unique insights, uniqueness, which is totally at odds with the Pavlovian view that everything we do is just a reflex coming from something else we've experienced.
1: Right. Uh, there are certainly built-in uh, these days, we don't call them reflexes, we call them central pattern generators, but it is it is a similar idea. Basically, there are programs that we come into the world with, and there are programs that emerge developmentally during our lifetimes. Uh, when you uh, hit puberty at, at age 12 or, three, uh, 12 or 13, uh, whatever the current average age is, th- things start to happen to us. Uh, and we don't understand them very often or sometimes we've been told about them and have we've taken courses in sex education and so on Um, and so we have a framework and we have a box to put them in Uh, but it's still full of surprises and that is because the more mature uh, part of ourselves the sexually mature part of ourselves emerges in all kinds of unexpected ways so that is, uh, that is a generative program, it's adaptive, uh, it's not rigid, uh, it certainly has a major features, major tendencies, uh, but it's not uh, locked into, in, into a single
0: program. Here it might be a good idea to define what we mean by cognitive. Uh,
1: it certainly is a good idea and and there's still as you might expect uh, debate about that Uh, the when i was a graduate student um, i kind of came of age uh, at places like ucla as initially as an undergraduate student uh, in the middle of his turbulent revolutionary activity where nobody exactly knew what was going on because you don't until it settles down, which took a while. Um, and uh, so I was, you know, kind of stunned and upset and curious. Uh, what is this thing about? And uh, somehow I had the the sheer chutzpah uh, to go out there and and talk to uh, some of these wonderful figures in psychology, people who had very often great reputations, or sometimes I thought they should have great reputations because they seem to be so good. Uh, And I simply went in and asked them, uh, what do you think is going on with behaviorism and with this cognitive business? And uh, what turned out to be true is that at that point, I totally lost control over the interview because all these people had been thinking about this question for a long time without actually being able to talk about it in public very much. Um, and the assembly came out with their story and it was always a very neat, very well thought out because obviously they had spent years thinking about this story. And so I, I got a chance to talk to Skinner and to talk to Noam Chomsky uh, and to talk to a variety of other people who are important in in the history of psychology and, and very enjoyable also it was fun to do.
0: And here it's defined as a meta theory that encourages one to infer unobservable theoretical constructs from empirical observations.
1: Right and that sounds maybe like gobbledygook to some of our listeners, but uh, think about it uh, in a a simple way. Uh, If you were Isaac Newton, um, and you knew about the planets, uh, the planets are points of light in the night sky that wander in unpredictable ways, or ways that are not nearly as predictable as what are called the fixed stars, Uh, So uh, Alpha Centauri is a dot of light in the night sky that appears to be very predictable. Uh, And uh, Venus is another dot in the night sky that appears to wander. And the Greek word Planete, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, means wanderer. So the planets were the wanderers, the fixed stars were the... If you're Isaac Newton, and you observe the stars.
0: The celestial pole?
1: Exactly, yes. Uh, If you're Isaac Newton and uh, you believe that the Earth might be a sphere, then you can draw a line through the middle of that sphere uh, where the axis of rotation is located. So the line comes out at the North Pole and it goes in at the South Pole. And since most people who were doing astronomy at that time lived in the northern hemispheres, they, it was a heck of a lot easier to observe the North Star than to look at the Southern Cross, which points to the equivalent uh, point in the southern sky if you sail around the world. So, uh, so if you're Newton and you live in England, it's very easy to observe on a clear night uh, the, the Northern star, uh, which we call Polaris uh, arbitrarily, uh, because it happens to be the uh, the, uh, the place where the arrow points, when we draw the arrow through the earth on its axis of rotation. And all this is imaginary, right? I mean, there really is no arrow. Uh, even the axis of rotation is is wobbly and so on. Uh, But it's a useful way to think about the complexity of living on this sphere where half of humanity gets to see the North Star, or what they call the North Star. And it must have been very early in human astronomical science, which goes way back, because humans have been watching the night sky for a very long time, because it's a very easy thing to watch. And one of the things you notice if you stay awake all night uh, is that all the stars that you can see seem to rotate in perfect circles, not ellipses, but circles around Polaris, the North Star. Now that is an illusion as we know, but people didn't know it was an illusion And so they genuinely thought, here I am on this patch of earth uh, in Southern Norway. Uh, I'm looking at the North Star uh, all night uh, and I'm seeing uh, these beautiful circles going, uh, just have to be centered on the patch where I'm sitting right now. And since I can simply set up a stick that will point, help me to uh, stay oriented to Polaris, the North Star, uh, all night, so I can be sure that I'm still looking at the same point in the night sky. Uh, it looks like I'm simply surrounded by these concentric spheres, beautiful concentric spheres. And that, of course, gave rise to the myth uh, of the harmony of the spheres that was so powerful in uh, the history of science And the reason it was powerful uh, was because it was perfectly good science. It corresponded to the observations uh, and in some cases corresponded extremely well. And as we know, the Mayans and the Sumerians, various peoples, various ancient peoples, figured that out and actually had ways of predicting the, uh, the rotation of the heavenly spheres. In astronomy today, that is called, uh, the North Star is called the celestial Pole. Uh, it's simply a nice phrase. It doesn't actually mean uh, that there is a heavenly uh, series of spheres uh, around the Earth, uh, and particularly not around the particular patch of Earth that you and I are operating, uh, are, are observing from uh, right now. So uh, so there was this very, very beautiful Ptolemaic uh, system of astronomy, which was based on excellent observations and turned out to be wrong. Why did it turn out to be wrong? Because the Earth rotates on its axis and gives us the illusion that the fixed stars are actually rotating around us. Uh, in terms of flattering our own egos, that uh, the universe is rotating around our particular patch of Earth. Uh, There has never been anything like it, as far as I can tell. It's just the most gorgeous, self-flattering viewpoint uh, of the universe. It's only too bad that it's not true.
0: Yeah, it's a pity.
1: I'd like to see if you say a little bit about why the solar system is relevant.
0: Yes, I think it's important you tie that tangent to something. Exactly, yes.
1: So so I think the I have to back up to the basic question, which is has to do with if you're going to build a science from scratch, what are the facts you start out with? And if you answer the facts are what you observe, that's half right and half. Wrong because of course, the planets turn out to be unexplainable in the Ptolemaic universe and. So on.
0: That was a nice digression. I'm sure many of the people are scratching their heads and wondering what the hell you're talking about. And why. But there is a portion of the book. Where you mention that frequently in science, theory tends to outpace what's available to us in terms of evidence, or at least solid evidence.
1: Yes, if I can, uh, let me back up a little bit and you can, uh, you can put this little stretch of uh, recording in, in the appropriate place. There is a long, long debate in science, that has to do with something that sounds very very simple namely what is a fact in the particular science that we're trying to do what is a fact in physics not so long ago the atom was a fact in physics it isn't a fact anymore because we know about all kinds of subatomic basic particles The atom was supposed to be the fundamental particle that you couldn't slice up anymore. That was wrong. The uh, planets, we all know because we have have, uh, satellites uh, that uh, travel to the planets, take beautiful pictures, send them back to NASA so we can all see them and admire them and love them and we know uh, what it's like to look from Venus to another planet or we can at least figure it out. That was not an established fact until fairly late in the game, around 1600 I believe, around the time of Newton and the people who amassed these huge bodies of observations about the night sky. So, uh, So what constitutes the basic fact? for a particular science is not necessarily obvious, and it's not generally true, that the textbooks tell you what were the facts at the beginning of the science. So in biology, what constitutes a species is not a stable fact. It keeps on changing because species also come along with variation in the DNA. So it's not just one genome, not just one package of DNA that constitutes the species. Well now you're a psychologist or at least you would like to become a scientific psychologist around 1900 and the big question is what is going to be the fact that you and I both agree on because scientists have to agree on their observations and from that we can construct this understanding of human beings And the big, big debate in behaviorism was very much about that. What was going to be a fact? And the initial idea was that the stimulus, the physical stimulus that arrives in my eyes is the fundamental fact. And on the other side, the response, the action that I take is a fundamental fact. Both of those points turn out to be wrong uh but it's still very widely believed uh the key idea though that i want to get across is that when we changed when we altered when we adapted our framework a little bit uh, after behaviorism ran into trouble we started to think that maybe we can make inferences based on our observations we still want to do very very careful observations obviously but we need to make inferences about that which we cannot observe directly such as the human mind i cannot observe your mind in fact i can't even observe my own mind very well Uh, but i believe there is such a thing uh, and i think there is such a thing because I can make that inference uh, based on doing a lot of reading, doing a lot of experimenting, doing a lot of people watching, all those kinds of things. And I really do think that people come equipped with something that can be called the mind.
0: And there are definitely people, very skilled therapists or con artists who learn how to model minds exceptionally well.
1: Well that's a very good point, and that's uh, that's something you start to worry about when you start to realize that's true.
0: Now when you mentioned the theory of evolution, I think to clarify what you mean by a meta-theory, with the theory of evolution there are different people like Dawkins and Gould who argue about the nature of evolution, whereas in this case The behaviorists and the cognitivists, if we must call them that, were arguing about the very framework, the very approach, the most fundamental part. Exactly.
1: And this is also what Skinner meant when he said that behaviorism is not the science of behavior, but it is the philosophy of that science, which is to say, it is the meta theory, it's the framework in which we hold what we believe will turn into psychology.
0: Which I think is a critical and important distinction, and I'm glad glad we've made it. And this ties in with one of the parts of the book titled, The Theoretician's Dilemma, Adequacy versus Testability. Right
1: now, uh, we claim in science uh, that our purpose is to uh, to make uh, to state propositions that are testable by observations. So, if you are Newton and you can predict the path of the planets, which was never possible before, uh, at least not in terms of fundamental mathematics. Uh, So you can now predict the path of Venus, for example, in the night sky. Uh, And that is enormously powerful. That is one of the major reasons why Newton was such a uh, fundamental figure in the history of science. Uh, He was able to predict things that, prior to his work,
0: nobody else was able to predict. This is a major theme in the book but it's somewhat esoteric still if we don't at least touch upon it we will be leaving a massive gap which is the issue of representation and represent the word representation is still controversial
1: and uh, wonderful uh, highly respected people in science disagree on it uh, and in a way right now it doesn't matter very much, but it used to matter a great deal because if I think you have a representation of Isaac Newton, for example, somewhere in this hypothetical mind that I'm attributing to you, uh, that means that it that can't be an isolated fact, it can't just be drifted in outer space. It, it has to have consequences, it has to have implications that I can actually observe. So, if I ask you, "What's Isaac Newton known for? What uh, What do you think he did? Do you really think he believed in astrology? Uh, all that kind of stuff. Those are testable aspects of your knowledge uh, of Isaac Newton. Now, the problem is that I can't see your knowledge of Isaac Newton. Uh, it is an inference. It's based on some evidence, but mostly. To tell you the truth, it's guesswork, because I do not truly know your entire semantic network, as it's often called, your entire knowledge representation of somebody as complex and interesting as as Newton. Uh, so there's a ton of inference that's going on when a child uh, learns to recognize the a facial expression of the mother, for example, learns to smile to the mother's smile Uh, and children learn to do that extremely well Uh, they do it very early on but they also acquire more knowledge as you go along because after all different parents are different and you learn to adapt to whichever parent you happen
0: to be in charge of And for all you know, someone could be handing me slips of paper with facts about Isaac Newton, and I could just be repeating them to you. Yes, we could
1: imagine a sort of a Turing test uh, that would put uh, a Macintosh computer in charge of what I believe to be your brain, which is actually
0: situated somewhere else in the world. Well, that's just silly. But important, because then you have knowledge, and then you have something even more ambiguous, much more ambiguous, which is understanding.
1: Yes, Uh, uh, there are different uh, depths of of knowledge, Uh, comprehension, understanding is one, Uh, perception is probably a much more superficial uh, aspect of knowledge. So we can't think of just one uh, format. Uh, for whatever it is the brain does when the brain represents whatever it represents. Uh, we have to have different levels uh, that talk to each other, translate into each other. Uh, we, have, we have to have a very, very complex model uh, that uh, we vaguely, in sort of a hand-waving way, we call it, it does information processing. Okay, that's cool. So what does that mean? And we have to articulate that. We have to make that explicit, and we have to make sure that we're not not
0: talking nonsense. And in private conversations, you and I have argued a bit about the value of folk psychology. Friendly arguments, of course, because I see the value in it. In this case, it seems that folk psychology has won out. Over academia, uh, I would certainly
1: argue that, and there are lots and lots of philosophers who think I'm completely wrong about that. So, so let's give them credit uh, or at least acknowledgement. Uh, folk psychology is the uh, is is what you and I believe about each other's minds, uh, and most of that stuff, it turns out, involves cultural universals, uh, meaning that every tribe that has been studied by field anthropologists who do very, very careful studies of different peoples in different parts of the world, uh, there are shared universals among all human tribal peoples, uh, traditional peoples, um, and knowledge is one of them. Belief in knowledge is another one, Uh, Not only do they know things about their world uh, but also they believe that about each other uh, that so-and-so is an expert on uh, botanical poisons, for example, in the environment in which the clan or the tribe lives. That's very important because that way you avoid getting poisoned. So, So you have to rely on other people's knowledge, particularly when you're a child and just growing up in this culture, uh, we believe that we have minds, we believe that other people have minds, but there are people of course who are along the autistic spectrum uh, who uh, do not quite have the fluidity, the mm-hmm. fluency uh, that uh, most people have in their beliefs about others.